Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 2, The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams. I didn't know. That seems very peculiar. What's peculiar about it? Didn't you tell me that he was your best friend down at the warehouse? He is, but how did I know? It seems very peculiar that you didn't know that your best friend was engaged to be married. The warehouse is where I work, not where I know things about people. You don't know things anywhere. You live in a dream. You manufacture illusions. Oh. Where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? I'm going to the movies. That's right. Now that you've had us make such fools of ourselves, the effort, the preparation, all the expense, the new floor lamp, the rug, the clothes for Laura, all for what? To entertain some other girl's fiancé. Go to the movies. Go. Don't think about us. A mother deserted, an unmarried sister who's crippled and has no job. Don't let anything interfere with your selfish pleasure. Just go, go, go to the movies, all right? And I will. And the more you shout at me about my selfish pleasure, the faster I'll go. And I won't go to the movies either. Go then. Then go to the moon, you selfish dreamer. And welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is, can you guess, all about books and literature, and each month we read the heck out of something, and we take a thorough look at it, we analyze it, and we're thinking about, hey, does it deserve its reputation, whether that's a positive or negative reputation? So this is episode two. I am going to be your guide through our particular piece of literature today, and I am Stella, and with me today is the panda to my moose. It is Tom Banneries. Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, can you believe we survived and we're together again on our own show? I know. We we made it through. This is, uh, you know, this might become a habit. Who knows? Only if the fans desire more. Well, this time around, I decided to go with a play that actually, I, I think I shocked listeners all around the world and said that it was neither on my list nor Tom's list. But it is actually uh, one of my favorite plays, and it's by one of my favorite playwright, actually, Tennessee Williams, The Glass Menagerie. So, Tom, it wasn't on your list, wasn't on my list. What is your history with this book, if you have any history with it? 
this is my history with this book. I've never <laughs> read it. I I actually I was I knew the title. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar with the titles of three Tennessee Williams plays. This Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, I believe, is one of his, right? Yes, it is. Okay, and uh, A Streetcar Named Desire, which I, again, I have not read any of them. Mm. I'm familiar with A Streetcar Named Desire mainly because of what I've seen, what bits and pieces I've seen of the Brando film, as well as Oh Streetcar, the musical version that was <laughs> featured in an episode of The Simpsons. Okay. But but The Glass Menagerie, I just I knew of its existence. My one of my colleagues teaches it, so I swiped a copy from his classroom uh, in order to read it. Thanks, Jamie. So yeah, this was brand new for me, and I tried to figure out why I've never read it, and it's just I don't think it was a conscious choice never had to have never read this. I think I just had never gotten around to this one so i was really uh really happy to to open up and and read something that i'd uh that i'd never read before yeah and you know i was texting with you last night and i said something like well this is not the first time that i've read it but i feel like reading it now i understand it better and it impacted Mm -hmm. me more i can't put my finger on what year of english i read it i believe it was also my sophomore year the same year that i read of mice and men so I, I have memories of it, uh, specifically, of course, you know, the symbolism of, of the unicorn breaking at the end and things like that. And in 2005, I actually saw, and I guess, well, let me back up and say that Tennessee Williams is perhaps my favorite playwright. You know, Shakespeare's pretty close there, and there are others that I really like. But I really like him because I feel like his characters are very relatable. Um, they have, like, real world and real person problems. I think there are some plays out out there that it's very enjoyable but it's hard to like put yourself in the place of one of the characters or it's hard to understand what they're going through because it seems like it's very it's a it's a far departure from your life but i feel like mm-hmm. with tennessee williams for me anyways i feel like there's always a character that i could potentially relate to and i feel like he has real life problems and anything uh and everything a uh, cat on a hot tin roof is one of my favorites as well and of course streetcar named desire is one of those i mean that's where that big quote stella you know comes from but of course people don't realize the the context of that because he had just had sex with slash raped um blanche dubois so it's like a bad situation with the stella thing but Mm -hmm. yeah but then yeah in 2005 actually went to new york city with my latin teacher and her daughter who's a big um musical and broadway fan and we saw a bunch of shows and we had a slot open to see something and we're kind of going through like oh what could we see and i saw glass menagerie was playing and i suggested that because i thought oh how wonderful that would be to see it live and performed so i saw that in the summer of 2005 and i remembered in particular that jessica lang was amanda wingfield and christian slater was tom (laughs) one of your favorite actors (laughs) yes and josh lucas was supposed to be jim o'connor the gentleman caller but he was not there so you got one of those dreaded white papers that says in place of joss lucas (laughs) and i don't even know who it was and i was trying to remember who played laura and i just thought i think it was just someone that didn't really have a name you know someone that was unknown and then Uh i did research it was sarah paulson who played laura which is like ridiculous now that i've seen other things that she's in and i feel like she's a much bigger star 
Mm-hmm. One thing she I know. She just won an Emmy. Yeah, I know. Cause she's really able to. I don't know. You can't even tell that it's Sarah Paulson in any of the roles that she's in. That's cool. One of the. It wasn't very packed, so that's why it was kind of easy to get. It was an afternoon. It was a matinee, and it was easy to get tickets. But there is one thing that I will always remember about this show. And that's there was someone very close to the front row. It was clearly a man, and he was snoring. And it was like, <laughs> it was like one of those obnoxious, like, oh my gosh, someone needs to wake him up because you can hear him. Christian Slater, like, stopped the production and turned and said, can someone wake him up? It's already hard enough to do this without someone, like, sleeping through it or snoring through it. Which, like, I've never seen anyone. I mean, there are wow. some, like, breaking characters and, like, doing funny bits with other actors, but I've never seen them, like, completely destroy. Wow. And then, but, I mean, com- uh, you know, that is pretty rude, especially with that sort of play. There are only four people. It's, a, you know, with that very small, small ensemble. Yeah, yeah, anything that happens, like, people are going to realize what it is. But it was a wonderful production. I'm very, uh, I was very blessed to see it. So that's my history uh, with this play. This play opened March 31st, 1945, and uh, many people very much lauded the play, um, and this changed Williams, his life and his fortunes, and then, of course, The Streetcar Named Desire, I think, was really what uh, bolstered his name. But what was amazing about it is that there's very much a history and a connection to Williams' real life. First of all, it, it there are two inspirations for the story itself. Um, there was a short story he wrote called Portrait of a Girl in Glass. And then he also did um, a screenplay called The Gentleman Caller. So there's sort of a connection there. But his parents' marriage was a little tense. And there was a quote that he just called it a wrong marriage. There, his mother sort of became a model for Amanda in this play. And then his sister, with whom he was pretty close, was actually diagnosed uh, with schizophrenia as a a young woman. She was subjected to a lobotomy with uh, pretty disastrous results and actually institutionalized. Um, He would help her financially and and visit with her and everything. But she's very much uh, a model for Laura. So I think a lot of his life informed this particular play for him. So that's a, a little bit of background. This play is known as, or the type of play I guess I could say, is known as a memory play because the action is drawn from the memories of the narrator who happens to be Tom Wingfield. And I would argue as well that it, you know, it's also the playwright's memories. Uh, so I just wanted to read from the actual uh, book or play the description of the four characters just so we get a sense and then I will go into the plot. So we have Amanda Wingfield, who's the mother, and Tennessee Williams describes her as uh, a little woman of great but confused vitality, clinging frantically to another time and place. Her characterization must be carefully created, not copied from type. She's not paranoic, but her life is paranoia. There is much to admire in Amanda and as much to love and pity as there is to laugh at. Certainly she has endurance and a kind of heroism, and though her foolishness makes her unwittingly cruel at times, there is tenderness in her slight person. Then we have Laura Wingfield, which is um, Amanda's daughter. Amanda, having failed to establish contact with reality, continues to live vitally in her illusions, but Laura's situation is even graver. A childhood illness has left her crippled, one leg slightly shorter than the other, and held in a brace. This defect need not be more than suggested on the stage. I'm going to ask a question about that later. Stemming from this, Laura's separation increases till she is like a piece of her own glass collection, too exquisitely fragile to move from the shelf. 
And then we have Tom, the narrator of the play and the son of Amanda, brother to Laura, and the younger brother, so just be aware that Laura is older. He is a poet with a job in a warehouse. His nature is not remorseless, but to escape from a trap, he has to act without pity. And finally, only appearing in one scene, really, Jim O'Connor, who is the gentleman caller, friend to Tom. He is a nice, ordinary young man. So one line. <laughs> Of, of that. So here we go. So The Glass Menagerie takes place in St. Louis in 1937. Tom is a character in the play and the narrator. He's an aspiring poet who toils in a shoe warehouse to support his mother, Amanda, and his sister, Laura. The father of Tom and Laura ran off years ago and, except for one postcard, has not been heard from since. He is thought of as the fifth character in the play. Amanda, originally from a genteel southern family, regales her children frequently with tales of her uh, idyllic youth and the scores of suitors who once pursued her, 17 at once, she says in her stories. She is disappointed that Laura, who wears a brace on her leg and is painfully shy, does not attract any gentleman callers. She enrolls Laura in a business college, hoping that she will make her own and the family's fortune through a business career. Weeks later, however, Amanda discovers that Laura's crippling shyness has led her to drop out of the class secretly and spend her days wandering the city alone. Amanda then decides that Laura's last hope must lie in marriage and begins selling magazine subscriptions to earn the extra money she believes will help attract suitors for Laura. Meanwhile, Tom, who loathes his warehouse job, finds escape in movies, literature, and sometimes liquor. This all concerns his mother, who begins to see his father in his actions. And this leads to frequent arguing and an unfortunate accident involving some of Laura's glass figures. After some time, Amanda convinces Tom to search the warehouse for a non-drinking gentleman caller for Laura. Tom selects Jim O'Connor, a casual friend and a past crush of Laura's, though Tom doesn't know this, and invites him to dinner. Amanda quizzes Tom about Jim and is delighted to learn that he is a driven young man with his mind set on career advancement. She prepares an elaborate dinner, decorates the apartment, and insists that Laura wear a new dress. At the last minute, Laura learns the name of her caller and wants nothing to do with the dinner and later actually becomes physically ill. Before arriving, Tom confides to Jim that he has used the money for his family's electric bill to join the Merchant Marines and plans to leave his job and family in search of adventure, like father, like son. At the dinner, Amanda wears an ostentatious dress from her youth and talks vivaciously with Jim throughout the meal. As dinner is ending, the lights go out as a consequence of the unpaid electric bill. The characters light candles, and Amanda encourages Jim to entertain Laura in the living room while she and Tom clean up. Laura at first is paralyzed by Jim's presence, but his warm and open behavior soon draws her out of her shell. She confesses that she knew and liked him in high school, but was too shy to approach him. They continue talking, and Laura reminds him of the nickname he had given her, which is Blue Roses, an accidental corruption of Plurosis, an illness that Laura had in high school. He reproaches her for her shyness and low self-esteem, but praises her uniqueness. Laura then ventures to show him her favorite glass animal, a unicorn. Jim dances with Laura, but in the process he accidentally knocks over the unicorn, breaking off its horn. Laura is forgiving, noting that now the unicorn is just a normal horse. Jim then kisses Laura, but he quickly draws back and apologizes, explaining that he was carried away by the moment and that he actually has a serious girlfriend. Resigned, Laura offers him the broken unicorn as a souvenir. 
Amanda then enters the living room full of good cheer. Jim hastily explains that he must leave because of an appointment with his serious girlfriend, a.k.a. his fiance. Amanda sees him off warmly, but after he is gone, she turns on Tom, who had not known that Jim was engaged. Amanda accuses Tom of being an inattentive, selfish dreamer and then throws herself into comforting Laura. From the fire escape outside their apartment, Tom watches the two women and explains in his final monologue that not long after Jim's visit, he gets fired from his job for, of course, writing poetry during hours and leaves Amanda and Laura behind. Years later, though he travels far, he finds that he is unable to leave behind guilty memories of Laura. Woo! <laughs> Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff going yes. on here. Yes, it's a lot to unpack. Whew. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, the first question is, overall, did you enjoy this play? I did enjoy this play. I had just come off of seeing the Twelfth Night and mm-hmm. on stage. And something I, I, I forget about modern plays, especially those 20th century American plays and, and others, is that they they take place in the same a lot of them take have are very, very uh simple or basic in their setting. And so this is a very I can picture this as a production. It's um very compact in, in terms of its setting and its characters. And and that made it easy to follow. But that wasn't the only reason I really, really liked it. It was just it had it reminded me of other plays I've read. It reminded me of other works of this time period. And I was like, and and honestly, it's a very sad play. Mm, yeah. And and I I read through it, and then as I was looking, you know, take notes and and thinking back and skimmed over some scenes and things like that, and just. Uh, what these characters are are essentially fighting against is it makes it so tragic in a way that Shakespeare isn't like, you know, it's not a, you know, it physically, it can, it's a little tragic, but not, not in like the level of Macbeth or something and not, not right. that type of tragedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, it's no, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I'm so glad. I was wondering as you were, well, as you were going or reading, I was imagining to myself, oh, gee, I, I hope he likes it because I thought, you know, this is the second book that we're doing for this show. Please don't let him get mad at me. But uh, you did, I think, calm or assuage my, uh, my fears because I asked if you were liking it so far and he said yes. Mm-hmm. I also really like it. Uh, I wouldn't have picked it, I think, if I didn't, unless I was looking for some pain. We're not there yet. I know, right? But even so, like rereading it, again, I think just being older and wiser, I think, you know, really time does change you. I realized really how tragic it is. And for me, actually, I felt like this was more tragic and sad and affecting than of mice and men was because I saw sort of more of the beauty and like um, happiness of you know the relationship between George and Lenny. But here I was just like, gosh, there are, all of these characters have you know their issues and there's kind of some hope and brightness at the end, but also there's the sadness of Tom leaving and the guilt and everything. So, whoo, it's it's it is it's pretty heavy. But like I said, I, I very much like it because. Four characters, I think, is wonderful. I always really liked as a as being an actor. Um, I liked 
performing in shows that were smaller ensemble. Because mm-hmm. I think you can flesh out those characters and you can really build on relationships more. And so I think you get to see, like, how does this family work as a unit? How do they work individually? Um, and then, of course, Jim, I think, is um, an interesting character to throw in the mix as well. But overall, yeah, I, I really like this play. Uh, that didn't change anything. I just realized that it's much sadder than I remember mm-hmm. <laughs> when I read it back in high school. So, whew, yeah. So I guess my first question is actually about the characters. Did you, I, I kept, you know, mentioning, you know, in my um, my preface to all this that I feel like there are relatable characters here. Did you see yourself in any of the characters? Not like like for like, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. where oh, I identified with and I kept chuckling <laughs> because my wife's name is Amanda. Oh, <laughs> you're Tom. That's funny. And she's, and She's southern. Yeah. You know, she's not like she's not like Georgia Southern. Yeah. Blanche, Blanche Deborah, the Golden Girls and all of oh, that. Dear. You know, she's not that she's from Virginia, but and she can she can do the twang pretty well. No, I, I you know, so it's not like it's not like I sat there and said, Wow, I'm really this person. But there I saw like I I recognized quite a bit of the interfamily conflict. Mm. Or I could see this, and that, that I think that's what drew me in as I was going. Like her, the the way he was so tired of being around them in a way, you know, not not in a nasty way, no, but he no. he was. You could tell this this frustration, and and I can I could very much picture this mother who is passive aggressively. Um, keeping her her kids down in a way because she's so fixated on who she was, and so I identified with them in the sense that I've seen these families before, or I've seen this situation, or I've had conversations with people I know who have parents like this, or you know who, or or who feel that sort of wanderlust that he feels. And I think on it, in some level, all of us, male, female, in, in some point in your adult life feels that mm-hmm. sort of pull, that run off and join the circus type of pull, which is kind of what he's doing when he says, I, I took the rest of the money for the light bill and I joined the, mer- I put in for the merchant marine. Right. And he's, he is essentially kind of the little kid who wants to run off and join the circus. Mm-hmm. And I think we've all felt that at some point or another. So, so th- in that regard, yeah, I, I really did did see myself um, in that in in the characters in that way. Yeah, and I think for for Tom too, you know, not necessarily feeling the burden of I have to provide for my family, but I think very much he's a model for you know those kids that feel a lot of parental pressure, which mm-hmm. you know as teachers I think we see that potentially that they feel like they have to take all these APs so they can get into a good college, and some yeah. of the parents are just supportive and like do your best, but others are like you need to take all you need to do the best you can. You better not come home with anything other than an A, you know that yeah. kind of thing. So I think he's representative of that. It's like you said, it's not like for like, but I think we can see Tom yeah. and students that we teach and things like that. I, you know, to a certain extent, feel like Laura. You know, I had some self-esteem issues, and uh, I think um, I'm also starting to learn about myself that I'm a bit of an 
introvert actually. I always felt like maybe I was an extrovert because you know I act goofy and clown around. But really, I've I've started to see that in public settings, I'm actually okay with like kind of being quiet and listening to conversations. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> or with new people, you know, you know, it's a little uncomfortable. So I'm sorry, I'm not painfully shy, but I can kind of uh, I see myself a little bit in her as well. Yeah, no, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. The, the person at the – if this were a party, you and I both I think in some level would be either not like hiding in the corner mm-hmm. but slow to enter. Correct, yeah. So there are people who come in and they're the ones who are like, I'm here. I'm going to talk to everybody. Where's the Where's the bar? Where's the food? Yeah. And I think I'm kind of like – I think you and I are very much the same. We're, we'll kind of be – we'll be in the room. We're not, we're not scared mm-hmm. but – and yet – among the people we know and know well, mm-hmm. we're not uncomfortable. Absolutely, yeah. So it's like almost like a a, a very like a a mix between that introversion and an extroversion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another character. Now that we're done psychoanalyzing oh. each other. <laughs> yeah, I kind of have a hard time relating to Amanda. I would say of all the characters, Amanda would be the one mm-hmm. that would I would have difficulty with. Like I said, I I I can identify. Her. Her. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Like, in I other people, see this yeah. person in other people. Like, I, but I, yeah, I, I can't relate to her. Be hard, yeah. I actually want to talk about Amanda and her. You, you were mentioning like her focus and sort of being stuck in the past, because mm. you know, far be it from me to disagree with the playwright. Um, but he does, you know, in the introductory monologue, he writes um, for Tom that Tom says his father is the fifth character in the play, very much represented. Mm either being mentioned or, of course, there's that image of him that's, you know, over the fireplace or wherever. But I kind of was starting to see the past as the actual fifth character, and I wondered what you thought of this. So there's a quote I at least want to say that Amanda says. She says, You are the only young man that I know of who ignores the fact that the future becomes the present, the present the past, and the past turns into everlasting regret if you don't plan for it. Um, and and just like I think we, we were saying that Amanda focuses on the past. Do you think the past, rather than just the father, is sort of the actual fifth character of the play? I think you're right. And I think you're right because um, there's a couple of players I'm going to bring up later on uh, where the father or the father's past is essentially a fifth character. Mm-hmm. And there's another play I thought of where the father is a fifth character, is the quote fifth character there's mm-hmm. more than five characters in the, in the story but is a overwhelming presence even though he's been dead um and that's lorraine hansberry's a raisin in the sun mm, right where the the father they collect the father's insurance money and mm-hmm. the father is held up in that play as ideal mm-hmm. so in walter younger has to live up younger junior junior has to live up to his father's image his father has been put on this pedestal in a sense. I'm, I'm being, very, being very simplistic for this kind of explanation here because we're about to play. Here, the father's, the, the father's presence is there, mm-hmm. but it's more of the, the history, but the firm of the father left. So it's the specter of the father and the specter of the past. Mm-hmm. That's that fifth character. And I think you're completely you agree with it because she's not focusing on her marriage. Right. She's focusing on when she was like a teenager mm-hmm. and she's talk. she, I mean, to the point where that she, she lives in this fantasy world of this sort of like Margaret Mitchell 
fantasy mm-hmm. of the South. She even drops the N word. She drops a couple racial slurs when yeah. she talks about how, you know, dinner used to be served and we'd let the, you know, what do this and blah, blah. blah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hmm. but then I realized in the context of things, I'm like, Oh, she's that woman. Right. And there's this sort of like, and then you wonder if, you know, and maybe it's just, you know, having known some of the greater context of these things, it's like, you know, is she, you know, is she really thinking of her actual past or in her past, in her mind, she's like Scarlett O'Hara, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you know, like where, because she's living in a, she's living in like an apartment in Chicago, no, St. Louis. St. Louis, yeah. St. Louis. It's in the Tennessee Williams, uh, the play was performed in Chicago. St. Louis. She's living in an apartment in St. Louis in the city. She's not on the plantation, mm-hmm. you know, and and I think you're right. I think it's more the past than the father because if it was the father and the father really was the fifth character. I mean, maybe it's for Tom, mm-hmm. but maybe Tom, the past for Tom is the father, mm-hmm. but maybe for, for Amanda, it's the southern teenage, you know, the gentleman callers and all that, how, mm-hmm. how I was once the pretty girl. And maybe for Laura, it's, I, you know, it's, she does think of when the one time is she like Jim and all that. But then I wonder if that's because she's trying to make her mother happy. Like her mother wants her to have a, a gentleman caller. And maybe that's like, she's trying to think of a way, mm-hmm. you know, like when, when have I, when have I been ba- like Laura's child and, that sort of little kid thing to want to make, um, did, did I make you happy? Right. Did I, did I do the right thing? Yeah. That's yeah. And I think that even happens at the very beginning because once Amanda starts on her well-known, very similar to, I think George, you know, how George knew that story in and out, just like when he did, mm-hmm. you know, Amanda, I think it's clear that she tells it very often and Tom's like, Oh no, here she goes again. And Laura says, Shh. she, you know, she, it makes her so happy to tell this. Um, so yeah. I, I think it is clear that, and, and I think it's a good point that perhaps she does bring up the fact that, oh, I, you know, I did like someone once and, and it was this because otherwise I kind of see her as a very timeless character because she doesn't focus too much on the past until like Jim like starts bringing it forward of like, why weren't you always in class? But yeah. she's just very much in this void with her glass characters or her figurines, yeah. I guess. Um, so she's very much out of it. And I think Tom, while there is that connection to his father because his mother pushes that mm-hmm. comparison on like, stop being like your father. I think he just was like, what can I do in the future? How can I get away from this warehouse? How can I move on from the family and, and do something else? the inevitability of the cycle repeating itself again because that's yeah, basically what happens the the yeah yeah so, and um, i guess you know the past was also for amanda carefree days potentially where all she had to worry about was like keeping her dance card filled potentially yeah. and and here she has to provide she's worried about her daughter and what her daughter's going to become and her son she's worried about her son becoming his father so i think there's just so many anxieties that it's easier for her to escape into the past yeah, maybe in her mind. It also, if you're if you're talking about the type of past she's thinking of with gentlemen callers in this very very what you would refer to as traditional mm-hmm. sort of life, it's not working out the way she would have thought. She has two adult children, neither of whom are married. In her mind, they should be often married, and eventually she will hit have the time mm-hmm. when she will be taken care of by her children, and they're in this. Bench and this an adult, uh, 
this uh, arrested development. It's not at, it's suspended adolescence. It's just this arrested development where none of them have moved on in some way or another. And maybe Williams is saying none of them have still moved on from the shock of their father leaving. But at the same time, you know, they are. You're right. Like I mean, uh, Laura's in this like limbo, mm-hmm. and uh, Tom is, is stunned. Tom and Amanda are both stunted in a way, mm-hmm. and and uh, the past is a big thing for for both of them. Well, you mentioned Walter Younger Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, from Raisin in the Sun, and uh, you had also mentioned previously Biff Loman from Biff Lohman. Death of a Salesman. Death of the salesman. And so, do you feel like Tom as a character has a place among these adult male characters who have potential but never can really uh, do anything about that or with that potential they have? Do you think he has a strong place with them? I want to say yes, and I want to say that I, I just—I was just looking up when Death of a Salesman, the the year of Death of a Salesman, this came first. Uh, Death of a Salesman uh, was was a few years after this. It was 1949, and then um, Raising the Sun's like 1964. It comes about like at least a decade later, a decade or two later. I I see. I just they. I thought of both of them because both of them are haunted by the specters of their fathers, mm-hmm. um, in in different ways. Walter, like I mentioned, his father, his 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 mother is hold, mama's holding him his father up on a pedestal because your father fa- papa died and and had died they got the insurance money he had been providing for them he was the he was he was the strong man and um and walter is not that and and that's what walter is struggling with in in a big way uh throughout that throughout that play um biff the same way biff's got having this like midlife crisis and he's haunted by the fact that his father i mean willie loman is the sad sad figure who had his infidelities and and things and and he I don't you know and again now this is me going off of the fact that I haven't read I have not read a death of a salesman since in eleventh grade so that would have been nineteen ninety three so we're talking like twenty three years ago but I remember Biff and Willie this whole like this almost like this crushing disappointment that he felt over who his father was and like and, and never never being able to measure up to the vision that his that Willie had of him and these these issues and here you've got this man. Tom, who is being compared to a man who left his family mm-hmm. and is going down the road of and eventually does do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And and I, I wonder if he is among them because of the fact that he is haunted in a way by the, the specter of his father and yet – and also this sort of – perpetuation of the cycle now in this case it's not trying to live up to somebody's reputation or being disappointed by what you know by having your world shattered per se by realizing this person wasn't who you were it was it's you know you wonder like should he be trying to avoid what his father did to his family or doesn't make sense at the end he does feel guilt but yeah i wonder if he does have a place among that is it this this kind of the start of like a, is is this the start of like an archetype mm-hmm. you know the the young man, um, the young adult man, with it, with those sort of father issues. Mm-hmm. Now I see Tom, and you'll have to. It's been a very long time since I've uh, read either *Raisin in the Sun* or *Death yeah, of a Salesman*. So yeah. I feel like Amanda places this um, the specter of the father on him, or does this comparison, and mm-hmm. she's the one who brings it up. Do Biff and Walter do that on their own, or does someone do that to them? 
Oh, I don't. I can't say, speak okay. for Biff because it's been so long. Okay. Um, Walter, I want to say. I want to say it's a little bit of both, but I want to say Mama is definitely. Okay. He's he's feeling the pressure. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's always conscious either. And with Amanda, I don't know if it's always conscious. She certainly does consciously throw it in his face. Right. Yep. But then the tension is always beneath the surface throughout mm-hmm. this whole play. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he comes in with a monologue, he goes out with the monologue, and and it's just this sort of seeing these scenes of what's happening, and it's almost like it's him leaving is always there, mm-hmm. and yet it's not like he's having long conversations with his mother and or his sister about leaving. Mm-hmm. You know, right. where he's not stepping aside and giving a soliloquy wherein he is contemplating leaving and oh what shall this do to my family that's the it's like the subtext of most of these scenes with the, especially with the situation with Laura and everything mm-hmm. and i wonder and i'd have to like find actual specific quotes and everything but i mm. feel like the father is always described as an adventurer like that was the reason why he left and mm-hmm. Tom always seems like he's more described as a dreamer. Like even in the last line, you know, Amanda says, go then, go to the moon, you selfish dreamer. And I feel like as a poet, like a po- I just feel like he is different from his father. Like they both want to get away to a certain extent, but I feel like Tom is more of like a, I don't know. Like it seems like he's a, more of an emotional person who needs to get away, whereas the father like physically needed to get away and experience other things. Does yeah. that make sense or? Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah. yeah, I would I would have to think more about Biff and and Walter to make a better comparison. I think between yeah. three. But I think you're onto something about there is you know being unjustly or perhaps justly compared with one's father, and and maybe that stifles these characters a little bit, and they want to do things, but they're just somehow unable to because of this like onus on them. Yeah, yeah. She is. You mentioned how the Jim doesn't drink. Mm-hmm. Because your father drank. Right, yeah. So there is that. There is a little bit of that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. resentment there. Yeah. So And Tom drinks a little bit too. Mm -hmm. I mean, he does the movie thing, which I think goes to that dreamer aspect again. But also like he comes in at one point anyways at least and he's a little – a little tipsy and and i think yeah. that gets at her a little bit so like father like son i think it just <laughs> makes her nervous it makes her nervous yeah. do you yeah. think there's an antagonist in this play because tom is described as the protagonist because uh, he's the narrator i guess that just goes with being the narrator and the character but do you think there's an antagonist in this play i almost want to use villain but i decided to take that out because i feel like that's too strong of a word i don't think there's a villain yeah there's no um yeah there's no villain <sighs> It's, it's, is this me just hedging, saying basically they're all their own antagonists? <laughs> like, like the, it's just there's the, except for Jim. Yeah, Jim is essentially a plot device, mm-hmm. right? right? I mean, yeah. he, he's this nice guy who comes in and he sees this girl he went to high school with, and you know he, he has this little dance with her, and it's very sweet, and he's very sweet to her, and he lets her down as easily as he possibly can. And then he goes. Uh-huh. And that's really all he has to do in the play. The play is about the three of them. Right. And yeah, they are all each other's and their own antagonists. They're struggling with themselves. They fight with each other in the way a family does. And 
each one of them is keeping the other tied down in some way or another. Because you can see if you look at the relationships between them, they're very much like that. And yeah, and then they, they set up their own psychological roadblocks to, to becoming uh, more than who they are. Yeah. Yeah, I think the farthest from the antagonist in my mind would be Laura, but I certainly mm-hmm. I completely agree with you that like she's, you know, in a way holding her her own self back uh being, you know, low self-esteem and and painfully shy as it's described. I think yes. the easiest one to say would be Amanda, but mm-hmm. at the same time she's also a sympathetic character because yeah. I mean, she's been through a lot, so it's hard to just point a finger and say like she's yeah. clearly the the yes. best person in this the play. Yeah, this isn't Mommy Dearest. Right. You know, she's not Joan yes. Crawford, like, no, no wire hangers and, and all that. Oh, man. Okay, yeah. No wire hangers! What's wire hangers doing in this closet when I told you no wire hangers ever? Work and work till I'm half Dead, and I hear people saying she's getting old. What do I get? A daughter! Who cares as much about the beautiful dresses I give her as she cares about me? What's wire hangers doing in this closet? Oh, heavens. Yeah, and, and Tom, you know, you want him to sort of be the, the good guy. And I think I had, like, false memories of him because I, when I was reading, I was like, oh, no, Tom, I didn't remember you being this way. I kind of had this romantic image of him. From, because guess, you were staring at Christian Slater the whole time, <laughs> thinking about how hot sure. he was. No, but I thought of him as, like, a, a, a dear and, and loving brother to his sister. Mm-hmm. And I think to a certain extent he is. But that last act, you know, very selfish. And, you know, perhaps it's the only thing that he could do to sort of save himself. But you can tell, you know, there is that guilt. Of leaving his sister was pretty, it's a pretty bad uh, moment for him. And then Jim, you, you did say that he let her down easily. But the fact that he kissed her i think is a is a bit of a problem there. he let her he let he leads her on <laughs> yeah yeah but he it's not he leads her on in an uninten- unintentional way mm-hmm. like it's almost like he's caught up in the moment yeah. type of leading her on as opposed to being a jerk mm-hmm. leading her on you know i never get the sense that he's this sort of lothario who's <laughs> uh, like he's right. he really is a stand up guy and he got kind of got caught up in what was going on there, and and yeah, let her on, and, but but then apologized. You know, it's he Williams's character. These characters are so human, mm-hmm. absolutely, and they're so very three dimensional that it's hard to label them using those literary terms that we have mm-hmm. because they're so multifaceted in yeah. that way. There was a sort of an acting direction. I can't remember when he said goodbye that the introduction pointed out. He grins and ducks jauntily out. And that, in the introduction to this book, I don't know if you read that, the person who was writing that um, sort of saw this as like a negative characteristic. Like, did that have any impact on him? He may have been, you know, apologetic and regretting that, but 
do these actions from Williams speak otherwise to like, oh, well, it's over now, and it was just like a momentary thing. Uh, I don't know if you thought about I, I sort of thought about that after I read it. I didn't want to be, like, influenced by the um, person who wrote the introduction, but then I sort of started thinking about that stage direction. Any thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, I, I don't know. Let's see. I'm looking at the introduction as well because I skimmed the introduction. Although Jim's courtship of Laura is not mean-spirited, neither is, is it thoughtful. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Um, he isn't typical guy. He isn't thinking. Mm-hmm. And when he grins and ducks jauntily out, Jim departs relatively oblivious to the damage he has left behind. Yeah. That I can agree with as well. Mm-hmm. And how could then again, he? He, yeah. he has no context. Right. The world of broken unicorns and Laura's shattered dream of companionship. But then, so he's oblivious. Yeah. He's not being mean. Mm-hmm. I think there's a difference. There's, you know, he, he's not, unaware is not, is not malicious, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and, and, and he didn't. And, and again, I, I was, like I said, I thought he was, I thought he let her down pretty easily, but, you know, and he was also being polite mm-hmm. and reflecting the same politeness mm-hmm. that Amanda had been showing him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the, the the writer is right in the sense that if you parse it out, but I don't think it was mean spirited. Mm-hmm. Uh, to keep on Jim a little bit, do you think he helps or hurts Laura overall? I think oh, it's all. Uh, that's a tough question. I know. <laughs> and I and I'm like. I thought oh. about this as I was reading this uh, the scene seven basically between. Yeah, yeah, and and I've got that open right now, and it's. Because he means to help her, mm-hmm. and maybe because you don't know what happened to her, because mm-hmm. Tom just leaves, so he—I don't even think he knows what happened to her. Yeah, and maybe she got a little bit of her confidence back. Maybe seeing that this guy she liked, if just for this moment, you know, maybe that gave her a boost. But then at the same time, does the cycle repeat with her? Where she becomes her mother doting on the time that the gentleman caller came. Mm-hmm. This boy kissed me once, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to think that he broke her out a little bit. I mean, I mean the, the symbolism there with, you know, obviously yeah. the unicorn is, is, is pretty apparent and everything. I would like to think that it, it changes her a little bit. And I think... It may have um, at least changed the relationship between Laura and her mother because I think for the first time that's a, a authentic scene between Laura and Amanda at the very end when Tom is outside and, and watching them because I think Amanda has sort of let down um, all pretenses and is actually comforting her daughter. And I feel like in a positive way, his intera- uh, Jim's interaction with Laura may have changed, like the negative, I guess, has changed the nature of Amanda and Laura's relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, Potentially, you know, I don't know if just one conversation about trying to think of yourself more highly is going to help her. As I was reading this, I noticed that he interrupts her a lot. So, like, it doesn't really seem like he ever listens to her. So it's more like him talking. And to to a certain extent, I felt like Jim was a little egotistical. (laughs) Like, he could have been talking to himself in a mirror and it would have been like, yeah, that's a pretty good, you know, (laughs) stage direction. Because she says at one point that the unicorn's probably my favorite. And then after he breaks it, he asks, like, oh, man, that was, was that one your favorite? Like, even though she already stated that before. 
before. And like mm-hmm. I said, he interrupts her. So I think he's mansplaining <laughs> at one point. You know? Oh man. So I think it's great that like she's having a one-on-one conversation with a guy that, you know, probably intimidated her, um, reminds her of a past in, in high school where she felt very self-conscious, um, not only because she was shy, but because of her, her legs and, and the clothing yeah, yeah, and everything. Like- and just having and being very nervous, like to go from being physically ill and not wanting to go to dinner to being able to sit with him and have kind of a conversation, I think was was overall positive. But I think, again, I don't know, like for whose benefit uh, was he actually talking? Was he just like talking about himself kind of and because he was really just saying, oh, I used to be this way. But it is it is a really it is a hard question. I think certain aspects he helped her out. Uh, and, yeah. and certain things, I think, did cause some problems in the end as well. You wonder how she sees it as well. Right. Just like she sees I mean, yeah. does, we're third-party impartial observers in <laughs> yeah. a sense. Yeah. In his mind, that was a great conversation because, you know, Jim's the guy. And yeah. in her mind, maybe it was. Yeah. Maybe it was, you know, and with the exception of using and, – and, yeah, you can't you can't look past the symbolism of not only the unicorn breaking but her giving him the mm-hmm. horse that right. resulted. Yep. And I, I think you – I really liked what you had to say about the way Amanda's comforting her at the end of the play because there was the sense that she wanted her daughter to be something she never would be. Mm-hmm. She wanted her daughter to be her. She wanted to live vicariously through her or, or something in, in terms of life and love. And she was pushing her in all these directions. So she never actually saw the girl who was in front of her. She was trying to mold her into something that she she wanted her to be because mm-hmm. she's still thinking of the way she was at that age. Yeah. So speaking of this glass menagerie, do you feel like Amanda – clinging to her her southern heritage is also a form of a a glass menagerie yeah i I just feel that the glass menagerie itself is tangible for laura Mm -hmm. absolutely because it's all these little glass animals Mm -hmm. but you know amanda is so much she's because she's telling us i think she tells the story to jim where she she talks about she at least puts that on that southern hospitality charm thing mm-hmm. like and and it, with not only jim but with um anybody she calls when she's she's calling for like magazine subscriptions and so those sorts of things right. and she's she's putting on that act but that act is very much of it's that's it's almost like her defense mechanism mm-hmm. you know she straightens up and she's like, you know, hi, you know, I know. You, can I put you down for a magazine subscription? Hey, you remember that novel? Remember how we were all loving Gone with the Wind? Well, they say this is going to be just as good as that, and you don't want to miss it. And she goes in the pitch, and then when Jim comes over, I'm going to make some iced tea or fruit punch or whatever she makes, and 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 you know, and and it's the sort of again going back into the character that she has made herself to be mm-hmm. from when she was a girl and, and the gentleman called was just to come and, and, and all of that. And, and it's, so she's still very much living in the past. And you had a question somewhere around and, and we'll, we'll get into it where, uh, Laura, not Laura, Amanda uses the word cripple yeah. at the end where she hadn't used it at all. Yeah, and she hated the word. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and she finally uses it. Granted, in in a bit of anger, I Correct. think the line in the line is that's right. Now you've had us make such fools of ourselves. The effort, the preparations, all the expense, the new floor lamp, the rug, clothes for Laura, all for what? To entertain some other girl's fiance. Go to the movies. Go. Don't think about us. A mother who's deserted, an unmarried sister who's crippled and has no job. Don't let anything interfere with your selfish pleasures. Go, 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 go to the movies. Then, then you get that go to your moon, your selfish dream. <laughs> yeah. I'd also like to point out that after Jim lets Laura down, mm-hmm. uh, right before Amanda comes in, where she gives him the horse, mm-hmm. she says, souvenir. And then we get the image of the screen, gentleman caller waving goodbye gaily. Mm-hmm. And then Amanda and Jim and, and Tom, Laura has one more line. It's the word yes. Goodbye, Mr. O'Connor. I wish you luck and happiness, success, all three of them. And do, and so does Laura. Don't you, Laura? Yes. Goodbye, Laura. I'm certainly going to treasure that souvenir. So she she hasn't she really doesn't speak for the rest of the play. And, mm. and so I don't know if there's a significance in that. Yeah. Or what? But yeah, but with Amanda, it's yeah, she it's like I don't want to say it's all, no pun intended, shattered yeah. for her mm-hmm. the way you might expect it to because Williams seems to be a little more subtle mm-hmm. than that. But there's definitely something broken within Amanda by the end of the play. Yeah. And I think, you know, for both Laura and Amanda, I think these glass menageries that they have created are certainly safe places that they mm-hmm. can go to. You know, for Laura, I think that's just a world of her own making. You know, no one's going to judge her. No one really knows of, you know, her being crippled. Um, she can be unique, just like the unicorn is unique. And I think for Amanda, going back to a time again, that she didn't have to care about really anything, and she reminisces and enjoys that. And I think, you know, a physical form, potentially, of that glass menagerie is her putting on a dress, which is clearly probably something she has held on to for a very long time and and you know the, the the men are both shocked that she's wearing this you know the first their first reaction at it i'm sort of traveling back in time but yeah i i've never really thought of her having a glass menagerie but since you you know you brought that up i, I thought that's a great comparison between those two characters yeah and i think you know the word cripple i think for a man mm-hmm. i wonder if it is do you think it's a uh a sense of she feels like a failure, like that word makes her feel like a failure or that, you know, she's ashamed to a certain extent because she uses it as a shaming device for Mm -hmm. Tom because this is all like, I'm going to guilt trip you right now. Oh, yeah. Because you did this. Look at what you wrought. And now (laughs) it's classic mother moves. Um, You look at what you wrought and now you're leaving. And so she uses it even though she never liked that word to begin with. Yeah. Like she should not be ashamed of her daughter. Yeah. But at the same time, if she is, she needs to come face to face with it. Right. And perhaps that is a moment where she finally does Mm -hmm. because she pretends not to be ashamed of her daughter. But there's accepting and helping and there's denial and enabling. Right. And Amanda certainly is the latter. Yeah. I do have a couple questions that actually deal with the sort of the format of the play itself. And I'll I'll do one here. And it's about this idea that, of course, um, Laura is crippled. And so, again, the, the character description is that uh, this defect need not be more than suggested on the stage. And I wondered if you were, you know, but to, to potentially see this or direct a play, do you think that it's enough just to know that she is crippled and to have that inform how she acts? Or do you think it's necessary for an audience to actually see her? 
uh, walking around. And it was interesting because I was looking at um, this has been adapted a couple times in Hollywood. Yeah. And then there was a TV film that's very popular from uh, 1973. And mm-hmm. I had who the actors were in this because I was surprised to see one of them in there. Uh, Catherine Hepburn was Amanda. Sam Waterston mm-hmm. uh, was Tom. Oh, wow. uh, Joanna Miles as Laura and Michael Moriarty as uh, Jim O'Connor. Oh, and wow. uh, so some of them, some of the clips I saw like, Laura was like clunking around, like clearly you could tell that she had some sort of defect and others like it was, it was fine. And so I wondered if you personally, would you rather see like it physically manifest or is it just enough that Laura knows she has a cripple and that's how she acts or informs her character? I guess uh, the follow-up question before I answer is when they shot it as a movie, do they shoot it as a movie or do they shoot it as a movie that's being played on stage? I can't you know what I mean? Like, question. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, you, didn't see. you know what I mean? Like, cause sometimes do, there, yeah. are, there are movie productions that obviously almost looks like they just set up a camera in front of a stage right. and then there's – where they turned it, they adapted it into a film. And I could see that working with the with the actual handy, physical handicap that they were shooting as a mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. I don't know – if you could pull this off on stage without it being drawing so much attention that it almost becomes comical, mm. you know, like, or, or if you just simply play her as frail, mm-hmm. like delicate for, she never, cause you're supposed to, I, I always get the sense that I know she went out and she would go around the city and walk around because she was so painfully shy. She couldn't go to school, but she didn't want it. She was faking going to school. Right. But at the same time, I picture as this, her, this kind of frail girl who and that sounds so sexist. This frail girl who, who's, again, the glass menagerie symbolism is right there for you mm-hmm. who could break. And so I don't think – you don't have to have her limp around stage mm-hmm. like, you know. But, you know, the, the, the other thing I, that I pointed out was uh, in my notes was um, this is also about like – I don't know if they use the terms anxiety and depression mm-hmm. as much as they did – back in 1945 as they do now mm-hmm. but there is that that sense of anxiety and depression in mm-hmm. her and i know her he, you said his sister was diagnosed with schizophrenia yeah yeah and i don't, I don't know anything from schizophrenia beyond what i vaguely learned in, in high school psychology class but um yeah but this idea that she's depressed and and has mm-hmm. anxiety disorder to the point where she can't function the oh. handicap is there you probably could play it very, very subtly mm-hmm. and wouldn't have to draw attention to it. You could probably play her. Now, I don't have a theater background. So my theater background ended in sixth grade with my performances have an Easter Scrooge and a Christmas Carol. So <laughs> I, I I don't I don't have, you know, I, I'm not not to the extent that that, you know, I know you've you've done acting and mm-hmm. things beyond um beyond like kitty chorus stuff. So um what is what is your take on it? Yeah, I think I think you could do it either way, potentially. I don't think it needs to be exaggerated, just like I think that character description says it you know, it doesn't need to be exaggerated. It shouldn't be shocking though. And I think, you know, because the the word cripple like pops up, you already get a sense, like a little hint, like, oh, there's something with Laura, there's something more going on with her shyness. Uh, and then when she goes into her backstory, it shouldn't be a shock that, you know, she says she wore a brace and she's very self conscious about the clunk, clunk, clunk. I was thinking about um I can't recall 
recall if Sarah Paulson had uh, a limp or not when I saw that play. But I was thinking about there's a Broadway musical called Violet. And that's about a girl who has like a facial. It was either like a burn or something like pretty bad. But they don't do makeup with it. So she like is just normal. But it, it informs like how the character is actually acting. And I think that's just an interesting idea that um, you sort of figure out. Like, if you're invested in this story and the, and the character, I think you'll realize that there's something much deeper with her shyness. And I think it gets mm-hmm. into your question about anxiety and depression because, yeah. to a certain extent, I think she really focused on this injury or you know deformity, however mm-hmm. we want to talk about it. And I think she made it out worse than it was. And so she heard this clunking, and even Jim was saying, like, you know, I never noticed that or anything. So she felt probably that it's like the telltale heart and she could hear like the bang, bang, bang and it was making it worse. And that's why she was really withdrawing inward into herself. Um, you know, I know how that is, though, when there is something physically there right. for, of yours. I think we all do. Yeah. And in your mind, it's all people see. Right. Yep. And yet people don't see it there's a <laughs> what or they see it but they don't it's not yeah it's not that you're defining characteristic that's right. the phrase i was going yeah. for there's a wonderful beautiful essay by alice walker called beauty when the other dancer is the self it is it is about how she has um she's blind in one eye oh. um and had a scar because uh when she was playing cowboys and indians with her brothers back when she was younger her brother in a matter of speaking shot her eye out Oh wow! and it's all about the self-esteem that resulted how the relationship with her father seemed to always change and her hating Mm -hmm. the scar in her eye Mm -hmm. my students and i read it every year and 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 you're and it's that's what speaks to it like you know and then getting over it everything i I recommend it to anybody um Mm -hmm. it's it's one of those classic essays it's like i think it's somewhere like one of those 100 great essay anthologies and things like that but yeah that that whole idea that and there is something to be said about the fact that you do often see something of yourself more than some other people do but me and sometimes that is because it when you're an adult you're still it's not like you have post-traumatic stress disorder from when you were a, a teenager, yeah. but you things trigger that. The mm-hmm. te- like if you were teased, and I don't know this. The thing is, they don't. I don't. I, and I'm, I'm I'm trying to remember how much he gets into her backstory in the play. I know that she was very shy. She was sick and sickly um and didn't wasn't always there and she had this crush on jim but it's not like i don't think we get into that much of her past mm-hmm. you know was she mercilessly teased by other people or anything like that but if, if you are somebody like that you know it, it does things can trigger responses in you like that and mm-hmm. and uh, and you do kind of build up in your head that things are worse than they actually are and, and i think you're right um in her mind this is worse than it might be so playing it subtly so that nobody notices yeah. on overtly on stage, maybe they kind of see it, mm-hmm. but only until this pointed out. Right. And I think that's a great way to way to put it. Cause you're right. Jim points it out and she, and he's like, she points it out and like, Jim's like, I, you know, I barely even noticed. Yeah. And I think it also comes, I mean, it goes back to Amanda to a certain extent. I mean, not to blame her, but I think having a mother like her who probably focused a lot on her physicality as a young lady, I think then Laura is like, oh man, like I need to also focus on being, and I can't 
I mean, I'm not beautiful because I have this. And I think there's a problem there as well, just with the stories. Um, I'll follow up your recommendation with something I read maybe last year, I think, uh, called Autobiography of a Face, uh, which is by Lucy Greeley. And it's a true story. Uh, She had cancer um, as a young girl uh, in her jaw and it like caused like they had to cut out a large amount. And then for years afterwards, she was just undergoing like these reconstruction surgeries and it never really got back to, you know, normal, but it was all about like facing, you know, the world and and looking deformed and everything with the face and how that impacts you internally. So I, I, since you recommended something, I thought I would recommend something thing um as well the example that we (laughs) focus on things that like we feel like um oh my gosh everyone can see this and Mm -hmm. this happens i don't know if this happens with you but i think it happens with middle schoolers i teach middle schoolers for those that don't know because they have less of a filter but like i will Uh literally happen this week that one of my students pointed to another girl that i don't even teach and said Look at look at her face. Basically, look at what happened. And I'm like, what? What's wrong? I'm like, her lip. She got hit by a ball. And I like literally tell the students, I because then that girl, you know, is all like sheepish. And I literally say, I would not have noticed unless you, if you hadn't pointed it out. So sometimes, mm-hmm. like people make it worse. Like other other people point out like some whatever defect, and yeah. I literally would not know. Like some, you know, sometimes they do it to themselves. They'll like say something like, "Do you see this?" I'm like, "No, yeah, I, I would not yeah. even have noticed had you not pointed it out." So I think yeah. that goes to prove your point that like we are like really focusing on this, and probably people don't even care. They don't even yeah. see it. Well, so. and it's. And it's Laura's self-esteem, right, right, which is severely lacking anyway, Absolutely. that causes her to do that. Mm-hmm. It's that sort of defense mechanism of let me be self-deprecating before you can see it. Her lack of self-esteem is is what brings that about. And um, this is a lot about that where she is a very – I really do not intend to use these puns. She's a very fragile person. Mm-hmm. And that's what's very, very sad about it mm-hmm. too. Absolutely. So another question I had about sort of the the format of the play itself or how it was produced is the screen device. Mm-hmm. And apparently it wasn't used after the the first production or so. Um, okay. Well, it says anyways in the in the notes, the production notes, that there's only one important difference between the original and the acting version of the play. So I think by that meaning, uh, what's written here actually didn't make it on to the play uh, to the okay. to the performance. So this device, as it's described, was the use of a screen on which were projected magic lantern slides bearing images or titles. And he says, I do not regret the omission of this device from the original Broadway production. And I wondered, uh, what did you think as you were going through? So just an example, um, something would happen. I don't know what scene. This is in scene four. I just flipped open. Um, Mm -hmm. And like it said, it will say like, uh, well, Amanda says something. Let's see here. Oh, Tom says, you want me to punch in red at the warehouse mother, meaning he'd be late. And Amanda says, you have five minutes. I want to talk about Laura. And then it says, screen legend, plans and provisions. And then Tom continues and everything. So I just wondered what your thoughts were on the screen device and do you think it's a good thing that um it didn't appear uh, in the actual production or do you think it it helps the play it enhances it in a certain way i was trying to figure out what the role of it was i don't know if it was supposed to be a title card 
like there are movies out there where there is a title card between sections of the movie. Uh-huh. Pulp Fiction, for instance, has two or three different title cards. Uh, Marcella Mar- uh, Vince Vega, Marcella Mar- Marlis's, Wallace's wife, uh, the, uh, the gold watch and, uh, the Bonnie situation, I think are the three. But they they separate three distinct different vignettes within the same film. Mm-hmm. This seemed to also have supplement or underscore things. And I was I kept going back and forth on it and I decided to hedge in my notes and say I would have to see this in order to see <laughs> whether actually, or not it would work. Because I never I have never seen the play performed. Mm-hmm. And I don't like when you saw it, they didn't no, and I could do be it. wrong. I don't recall it though. I think you I don't feel recall like it. it. Yeah, yeah. It it sound honestly, it, it sounded like a really pretentious theater trope mm-hmm. thing that seemed in his head to be good at the time, and yet he doesn't regret admitting it because it was an edit that he made and it worked out for the better. That was the impression that I got from the production note. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know that oh, this ended up working out for the better, but I kept it in the script here just for. I don't know, authenticity's sake or whatever. Uh, so I am fine without having seen it, but I can't tell you whether or not it would work because I didn't, I've did. i never actually seen it work. Yeah. Uh, he all. says that the, uh, the purpose of this will probably be apparent. It is to give accent to certain values in each scene. Each scene contains a particular point or several, which is structurally the most important. Um, for me, as I was reading it, I thought it was a little, I felt like it interrupted kind of the flow of things like clearly intrusive yeah i i thought so because i can see like it's sort of like an exclamation point like you need to be prepared something's about to happen but then like moments later um especially near the the tail end i think of the play whatever was on screen would be like literally repeated either like the next actor or the next character or a little bit later on and I feel like it, rather than pointing our attention to something, I feel like as um, an audience member, it would just be better to immerse yourself in the play and like you pick out where are these important moments or like what's something I should focus on. I, I just felt like it was a little bit of a distraction. So I'm glad it wasn't in the actual play. So it was interesting to uh, to read it in there. I also feel like it's more of a comedic kind of thing that I would see. Like someone would, I don't know, break the fourth wall and be like, ding. And then like, you know, <laughs> something like i feel like that rather than it doesn't really gel well with this uh particular play but that's that was i just wondered what you thought about this screen because i thought that was pretty interesting no no and i I think i I think we kind of agree in the same sense where you're right that intrusiveness and yeah the comedic thing it's it's a little too on the nose Mm -hmm. in a way i guess it might make for a decent director's note yeah like if you're performing this, you can it can be a guide. Mm-hmm. So you know and, and as as if you're analyzing this as a piece of literature the way we are, it, it, it helps. Right. You know, because right. it's kind of putting a little finer point on it. But yeah, it's there is like I said, there's something um very lifelike about what's going on here mm-hmm. and it, it might take away from that realism. Absolutely. Well, as as we start ending this here, we're left with, as we begin, nice little ring composition with Tom, 
Mm-hmm. And I wonder, do you think that Tom should feel guilty because that's sort of, you know, he has this, I feel like a specter now, not of his father, but of Laura following him around on his little adventures. Do you think he should feel guilt? And do you personally blame him for leaving at the end? I don't totally blame him. Okay. I think he deserves some of it because he made a conscious choice. Mm-hmm. So he has to own up to his own actions. However, like I said, when we were toward the beginning of our discussion, they're all their own antagonists. They're each other antagonists. Mm -hmm. They all play some role in what happened in the house. Mm -hmm. So they're all to blame for this. Even the past, even the fact that this is a cycle repeating itself and repeating itself and repeating itself. Like, you know, is he going to, is it going to happen to him one day as well? You know, is he going to die young? (laughs) I do like his model. I really like his monologue. Mm-hmm. At the end, mm-hmm. because he says the window is filled with pieces of colored glass, tiny transparent bottles and delicate colors like bits of a shattered rainbow. Then all at once, my sister touches my shoulder. I turn around and look into her eyes. Oh, Laura, Laura, I tried to leave behind me, but I am more faithful than I intended to be. So I I think he deserves some of the guilt here. Mm-hmm. And he says... I run to the movies or a bar. I buy a drink. I speak to the nearest stranger. Anything that can blow your candles out. So he's still like he ran off to find adventure. And yet he's talking about how he was still doing the things he used to do. You know how she was, oh, go to the movies, be your big dreamer. It's like, did you ever actually chase your dreams? Mm. Or are you? did you just run away? Yeah. And that's where he should – that's where the guilt maybe lies. That mm. he never really did what he said he was going to do. That he just – he is, he didn't escape so much as run away right. from his problems. So he maybe has to face the responsibility of of his act for his actions. Mm-hmm. And I think he really is able to fulfill the prophecy almost, if if we can call it that. That Amanda says mm-hmm. that my first or one of my first questions about the the past. Amanda says you are the only young man that I know of who ignores the fact that the future becomes the present, the present the past, and the past turns into everlasting regret if you don't plan for it. Because I think at the beginning of the play, at least beyond his monologue, he's thinking of the future. He's more focused on the future and now like it's all of a sudden the future is his present and he's regretting now the past and leaving Laura. So now he's buried mm-hmm. in the past as well. So I think yeah. there's like very much this shift um, with all of the characters. Yeah. I, I think he, he should feel guilt to, you know, it's, this is a, it's a hard place. Like, you know, all these questions, it's hard to, to answer. These are like real life people for me, which is why I really love this play. Yeah. And, you know, I feel for Tom because he was in, he was in a bad situation. Again, there's this heavy burden. He has to provide for the family because he's basically the man of the family. Uh, so he's got to be the breadwinner. And he hates his job at the warehouse and he wants to do something else. So you want him to be able to do something else, but it's not like he's free from attachments. And so you just wonder like to what extent are you, should you be selfish or should you be selfless and, and sacrifice what you want for the betterment of others. And the only fault that I give him honestly, because I think, you know, with Amanda, you know, she's not my favorite character. She has some, you know, there are some sympathetic qualities to her, but I just really regret the fact that he left Laura. Um, and like I said, I think I had this romantic image that they had a 
a better relationship and I was, yeah, 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 it was yeah. broken by this, but I just wish that he hadn't left her. And, and I'm hoping that the relationship between Amanda and Laura did change after all this and, and it turns out better. But if the Amanda, you know, was what we saw in scene one or scene two, I guess, then clearly that's a damaging environment for Laura and it's shame on Tom for leaving her. But if he leaves her in a, a better place and that's great, but I think there should be some, some guilt there. And, you know, I'm still, I'm sad, but there was a, it's sort of like a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. There was really no good thing for, for Tom to do. Either way, it was going to be unfortunate for him and sad. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I hope we, um, I don't know, I hope I was able to bring out like the good qualities and, and people want to read this because it really yeah. is i think it's it's a it's a great i think it's a great play and i think that um yeah so this is i guess this is that part right does it deserve uh its place as you say in the canon does it deserve to be read by school children or does it deserve its its reputation as being uh, a great play by tennessee williams and I personally think it does. And I was thinking about this because I'm, I'm holding a play in my hands right now and I'm flipping through it and I'm <laughs> ruining my, my, my colleague's copy of it. Um, because I keep twisting it Buy around. And it, yeah. I'm going to, I'll shove it at the bottom of the pile so it flattens itself oh, out again. No. It's not a very long play. Nope. Uh, you know, it may be a clocks in if, if you're actually, if, if you go one minute per page, it's your clock in in about roughly an hour and a half. Yeah. But it sucks you in so that it reads very, very fluidly and very quickly. Whereas, and, and I think this is, this is important. I like Shakespeare. I love some Shakespeare in plays, but I think that we, in, in, when we're introducing this to an English curriculum, especially in high school, cause it's anybody younger than like, I don't think younger students like middle school students would even get this, but on, on that, you know, on the level that it should be understood. And I understand why it's taught in AP courses and things, but at the same time, like it exposes students to drama that is beyond just Shakespeare. Because I think when they hear we're going to read a play, they will automatically go to Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Because I think honestly, I, yeah, I think because I'm trying to think of what other plays I read in high school. Did you read The Crucible in high school? No, I actually didn't. I didn't read The Crucible until I taught it. Okay. I read Death of a Salesman. Right. We read we read that's the Arthur Miller play we read, and we read, but I read three Shakespeare, three plays by Shakespeare, Antigone. Mm. So we were reading some Sophocles, mm -hmm. and as far I didn't read any modern plays. Mm -hmm. Or oh, in a Doll's House, we read Ibsen. That's the closest oh. to a modern play we got. And in middle school, I read The Diary of Anne Frank mm. and in play form, you know, and, you know, it, it, I think that modern plays like this and other play, other playwrights of the 20th century and even the 21st, if you can find something that, that will translate well to high school students, are valuable because they show you the value, value of this genre as a way to illustrate, you know, the themes of family and, and and all of these uh, all of these things, and especially since this really holds up, um, this doesn't need this does not this is not dependent on its setting in terms of its Absolutely. time. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. Um. And and many of the great plays are, and those that are dependent on the setting of their the time they're setting, can end up being allegorical, mm -hmm. or they just end up being timeless because they're just that good. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I just I really, really do think, um, and I think this is I, I I don't know how many people use this throughout the country. I really hope people, a lot of people do. I hope it's not underused because I think it's really, really worth the uh, worth exploring. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's more accessible to a certain extent because, you know, Shakespeare is lovely. I also love Shakespeare. But mm -hmm. I think, you know, the language is difficult and it's sometimes harder. But I feel like this, and not saying that it's like watered down or anything, but I think it's just like, you know, the language is... is... Straightforward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I 100%, you know, wholeheartedly agree that this could be transplanted in 2016. You may have to shift, like, the gentleman caller. You may have to, like, trans, you know, change that a little bit. But all yeah. of these characters, like, I can see, like, these sort of societal issues still, you know, occurring today. Um, and I think that it could potentially reach anyone. I think that the characters are relatable to a certain extent, and if not for you, and, and like you said, like for like, I think you can look around and see, oh, well, you know, Tom is just like, you know, an overburdened teenager, or, you know, with lots of parental pressures on them. Um, yeah. It's... Oh, it it's a it's a sad play. Um, yeah. Like I said, it, it's it's more sad than than I remembered it being. But I think you know there there are patches of hope. But in the end, I think Tom's monologue is also very tragic and everything. But I I think it absolutely deserves its place. I think that I I hope that people pick it up and give it a read. And I was actually trying to think because you mentioned about it's probably an hour and a half because there wasn't Act One, Act Two. It was just seven scenes, and I was really mm -hmm. trying to remember if there was an intermission and i don't remember there being one but i can't be like 100 percent. and i don't have my playbill okay. with me so i couldn't check but i could i feel like an intermission would break up the flow and it works better as like a cohesive like read it from start to finish kind of thing yeah. which is what i did i i read it in um more or less one sitting, but yeah, yeah I, I, too, I think I, I wholeheartedly recommend this uh, to anyone. Um, I, I think it's a, a beautiful play, and yeah. All right. So, what do we have next? I'm excited. We are going to look at "I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings" by Maya Angelou. <laughs> I've never heard of this book. You've never heard of Maya Angelou's uh, "I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings"? No. It's her. It's one of her oh, memoirs. Okay. Yes. yes. It's uh. It's it's her memoir of her childhood and her teenage okay. years, um, growing up in Arkansas, oh. and in um in the Midwest. Uh, so we're kind of staying in the same setting, and I think it's relatively roughly the same time period. And uh, it's it's a book that I read in high school. It was one of the first uh when I was making this list. I think it's like the second or third book I read. Um, and one of the first books I read on this list that I made that I hadn't already taught. So, okay. uh, so uh, yeah, so that that will be we'll be doing that next episode. So, and my, I just want to say for listeners that my um, surprise and excitement was uh, totally authentic because Tom and I have decided that we are not telling each other what the next books are because I think it's fun yes. to be surprised by the end. That was fun to like not know. Yeah, with, with baby yeah. breath, what is it? Yeah, I think I think our exception to the rule for that. Is like a really long book right. that takes a lot of preparation, yeah. like Les Miserables or something, <laughs> or Anna Karenina or something like where because where it's going to take like months to read the book, and, and then and then if we have any special episodes coming up, we we will know ahead of time. But yeah, we we want to keep each other in suspense up until the end of the episode, and I I really found that fun too Absolutely. last episode. Yeah. So well, Tom. Another exciting thing we have is an email. Uh, where can people, listeners and fans, email us? We have an email address now. It is requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. 
Uh, we also have a Facebook page, which is required reading with Tom and Stella. You can just search for us and, and, and like us there. And, and we'll try to read any comments we get there or emails we get uh, on the air as we get them. Since it's a monthly show, we might, you know, we might be able to throw them in on the end here and, and what have you. So you said you have, we, we had a comment. And, we uh, do. We do. From Burt Ward's younger brother, Robert Ward. <laughs> He, our Holy first, literature, Batman! I know. I think he's our super fan because I think he got the episode at like 3 a.m. and was so eager to to read and or listen. <laughs> so Robert is our super fan. So he says, "Dear Stella and Tom and Robert, I just want to stop you there and say thank you for putting the appropriate order. It should have been required reading with Stella and Tom." Anyways, uh, he he says, "Yeah, thanks, Andy Leyland." <laughs> It's as it should be. Great episode. Seriously, I loved the first episode and hope to eventually, maybe if I find the time, make this sort of a book club and read or listen to the books you'll discuss in the next months. I'm a lapsed reader and nowadays struggle to find the time to read like I used to or would like. Hopefully this will be a motivator. Knowing the series was going to drop on the 15th, I actually kept an eye out for the episode as soon as I could. 3 a.m. See? So I would waste no time to get to it. I personally have never read of Mice and Men. I have a vague recollection of seeing the Gary Sinise film and the older version, but that's so long ago I remember zilch from them. I don't have anything against Steinbeck, but sadly he is one of those writers I don't have much exposure to out of a short story or two from school. Your coverage was great, and I really enjoyed listening to you too. It actually inspired me that perhaps I ought to find the time to read the Steinbeck novel I've always wanted to, East of Eden. I'm not going to lie, it's because of the film. I've always wanted to read it since the film is easily in my top 20 films of all time. But your podcast... It's a great book. I've... Okay, well, I'll finish this and then I'll, I have a comment okay, about sorry. that. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Um, but your podcast has already motivated me to get off my butt, so congrats. Yeah, so this... In my school, there's like weird circles of like a book starts to go around and they'll say like, oh, I think the last one was the, the Brothers... Karamazov. Dostoevsky? Like, yes. Like, random people were reading it and it would be, like, passed around. I don't know. And then the next one was um, All the Light We Cannot See, which I really recommend. And so, recently, East of Eden is, like, suddenly people are reading East oh, of really? Eden. And I'm like, what's going on? And it's on my list. I just haven't gotten to it yet. But anyways, mm-hmm. back to his... Uh, his note here. One note for possible discussion in a future episode. Do you have any authors you can't get into? Possibly as a way to get to know your personal interests. A short discussion of authors you've liked, perhaps lesser known, but their style you just glommed onto and who, if any, have you repeatedly tried but can't. As an example, I'll give my inaccessible author, though I do have ones in mind on the other side too, Stephen King. King holds a place in modern culture as a metaphorical king of horror, but having read a couple of books by him, I just don't see it. Sure, for the most part, I love adaptations of his work, but ultimately find him muddling. I can appreciate his work, but find it tough to drudge enthusiasm for his written form. Do you two have similar issues with other authors? And that's all that Robert has to say. So uh, I think you have – you said you had a couple right away off the top of your head. I – Professor Allen is just Uh-oh. like licking his chops Oh, right no. Now. Um, is it Thomas Hardy? No, it's oh. Jane Austen and Charles Dickens. Oh, my heavens. I, I just – I've read a couple of novels by each, and I, I just um, – 
I, I see the value in some of them, but I just I can't. I, I just Dickens especially. I just I, I I enjoyed a Christmas Carol, but like I've read a Tale of Two Cities twice, and and not really. Um, I don't want to get too much away because those that and great expectations are on this list, so we'll eventually get around to <laughs> discussing them. Um, but I've never been a I've just never been a huge fan. Now, and there, I was I was saying before we went on air, um, the the other one I could think of was Tolstoy, but I've never actually read Tolstoy, and I, I said that Tolstoy intimidates me, and I ha- I, I I will eventually read something by him because mm-hmm. I'm not afraid of the Russians. I enjoyed Crime and Punishment. Um, which is Dostoevsky. It's not. It's not Tolstoy. Uh, but yeah, Dickens. Dickens especially. Dickens more than Austin. Austin. I think Austin is just the subject matter of Jane Austen's novels. I'm just not. It's just not my thing. But with Dickens, I just I couldn't really get into it. And I, I know that people love him, and yet I I just it's. And I know people love A Tale of Two Cities, and I, I was just I I I don't know if I was finding it hard to follow or, or what. But it was just the his his novels just not something I've ever really gotten into. As far as authors that I follow or anything like that, and I'll pick up, I go in and out. It depends on if I'm on a kick of something. There's some Stephen King stuff that I enjoy, and some that I was found terrible. I was really into Douglas Copeland for a little while in my early 20s, and I read uh, Generation X and Microsurfs and Girlfriend in a Coma. There was another book that I really liked, and I can't remember the name of it right now. Um, and then kind of fell off on that. And then there's a, there's a number of nonfiction authors that here and there that I've uh, enjoyed. And for a while, I was into J.D. Salinger and, and, and John Steinbeck. I've read quite a bit of John Steinbeck. Uh, Hemingway is the one who I – like what Robert was saying, what he said about Steinbeck, aside from a short story here or there, Hemingway is that for me. I, I read like one Hemingway novel and a couple of short stories, and I probably should read more Hemingway, but I just never really did. But yeah, Charles Dickens is the one where I'm just like I, – I, I'll, maybe I'll give it another try, but he's the one I'm just like, ugh. Yeah. So. yeah, for me, it's more, it's like individual books almost, not necessarily authors. And I think it uh-huh. might just be because my list is like very eclectic. Com- I know. It's just so like, you know, I could read one, like I said, you know, autobiography for of a face could be one of them. And then it might be like, I don't know, Tess of the Durbervilles or something like that. Uh-huh. There were you just two. Made, you just made Professor Allen's day. Okay. So I will mention Thomas Hardy because reading Tess of the Durbervilles, I was like super excited about it and I was enjoying it and enjoying it. And then all of a sudden, like it, I, my gut or my heart turned black and rotten because all these terrible things started happening. And I was like pulling out my hair like, why is this going on? (laughs) It was ridiculous. And I got really upset at it. But also I couldn't put it down. There are very few books that I get so disgusted that I'm just like, I'm done. And I don't even finish it because I really try to make it through and finish it. But Thomas Hardy seems like someone told me actually with him, you need to start from the end and work backwards because that like, was Professor Allen. Was it okay? <laughs> yeah, Professor Allen <laughs> made guy. as made. I've heard that joke from him a few times. If you start at the yeah. end and work backwards, you get a happy makes, ending. Yeah, and even I didn't read it, but I watched like the recent adaptation of Far from the Maddening Crowd, or and and even that was like, oh my gosh, why are you making these terrible decisions? It turned out okay in the end, but still, I don't know why he makes you have to go through this and there was a random copy of something i i can't even remember in like a box that uh, that accumulates books at in a workroom at school and i was just <laughs> and it's by thomas hardy and i was reading the back cover and i was like this is horrifying and awful and i put it back someone yeah. <laughs> 
I need to go look what it was and, and, and text you. Like, But if it's still there, I'm sure it is. I, I read two Margaret Atwood books uh, that were on my list, and I do not like her as an author just from these two. I read Orcs and Crake and uh, The Handmaid's Tale. Kind of in, at least The Handmaid's Tale is like an interesting idea because um, it's sort of taking the book of Genesis and like, I don't know, th- these handmaids are basically used for reproduction and like the wives aren't really. But I I did not like them at all. Um, as for Dickens, we're kind of on the same page, but it just depends on the work for him because I really liked David Copperfield. I loved mm-hmm. it. I, I really got engaged. I thought, you know, it had its like funny moments and its tragic moments, but I really liked it. I did not like Great Expectations at all. Um, Tale of Two Cities, I think I'm like you, that it was like, it's so like back and forth and there's a lots of stuff going on that oh, I have all of her twists left I think with him uh, but I needed a break and I think the Russian authors also make me a little bit nervous I have read Anna Karenina that was sort of on like my list of like I need to do this sometime and I did and uh, an author that I really like actually I, I wish I had more time to read like all of his series is Brian Jacques who writes the Redwall series and I don't know if it could be considered YA or not um, the Redwall series are you know with the little animals and sort of in medieval times but oh, okay. I just find them very enjoyable um, and I think you know fantasy and, and it's not all like happy happy joy joy kind of stuff but you know there's some tragic things that also go on uh, Jane Austen, I enjoy her overall. I think some of them I like more than others. Northanger Abbey, I actually really like, um, but that's because I think I like gothic horrors mostly. So if I were to pick a genre, I like those like Rebecca, Jane Eyre, those sort of like mysterious things. And Northanger Abbey was a satire that was making fun of that type of genre, and I really enjoyed it. But uh, yeah, for me, it's not necessarily an author rather than like certain books that I despise, like um, Kate Chopin's uh, The Awakening. I hate that book so much. (laughs) Please don't pick that one ever. (laughs) No, no, that's not on my list. (laughs) But yeah, hopefully that answers your uh, question. Robert, thank you so much for listening. You are a super fan of the month, (laughs) maybe of the year, for listening (laughs) right when it comes out at 3 a.m. and writing in. So we appreciate any questions or comments that come our way either on the facebook or again required reading cast at gmail.com okay how do i sign out i don't know how do you sign out (laughs) you're the one who just edited is this Um, gonna be a running gag well i guess what do you mean i don't know the read on keep on i don't know (laughs) we can't seem to find a catchphrase to finish the show wasn't it keep on reading read on reading lovers I'd say fan the flame. No, that's terrible. But that's that. Yeah, there's no. that's just not. No, 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 no. Keep you don't want to fan the flame in the direction. Turn the pages. Keep the pages turning. I I don't know. I, I this this is this might take a while, listeners. Uh, good night. Read on, reading lovers. You could say read on bad lovers because Barbara Gordon is a librarian. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. Just. Here, it has to be without, yeah, no continuity. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Just did. Oh Good night. Ciao. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I didn't go to the moon. I went much farther. For time is the longest distance between two places. I left St. Louis and followed from then on in my father's footsteps, attempting to find in motion what was lost in space. I traveled around a great deal. The city swept about me like dead leaves, 
leaves that were brightly colored but torn away from the branches. I would have stopped, but I was pursued by something. Perhaps I am walking along a street at night in some strange city before I have found companions, and then all at once my sister touches my shoulder. I turn around and look into her eyes. Oh, Laura. Laura, I've tried to leave you behind me, but I am more faithful than I intended to be. I reach for a cigarette, I buy a drink, I talk to the nearest stranger. Anything that can blow your candles out. For nowadays the world is lit by lightning. Blow out your candles, Laura. And so, goodbye.